Architects and AEC professionals, it's time to connect, grow, and redefine your professional journey. Imagine a place where you're part of a vibrant community, accessing resources tailored to your needs, and earning continuing education credits effortlessly. That place is here at Gable Media. Join our legacy membership, your exclusive pass to a world of opportunities. With instant access to all our CE courses and groundbreaking content, you're set to excel. And here's the game changer. Lock in your legacy membership at an unbeatable introductory price of just $29 per year, forever. Plus, enjoy contests, events, and unique freebies. But hurry, I hear this special pricing won't last long. Spots in our legacy membership are limited and filling up fast. Follow the link in the show notes to be part of something groundbreaking with Gable Media. The HOK matrix for the bulk of Gio's tenure uh, until he retired at age 70 was this matrix began a process where I, I would say HOK was growing. We were getting more work because of the rise of project specialists and because of geographical growth. But it was the seeds of some future real trouble and challenge. My name is Mark Arlapage. And I'm joined by Patrick McLaney, FAIA, and former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. This is Build Smart. Patrick shares stories from his remarkable 50-year career at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO of the company. With themes of leadership, finance, people, culture, and so much more, you'll find that there's a lesson in every episode. Welcome back to Build Smart. In our last episode, Patrick laid out how he advanced from a junior designer to a managing principal. And he also shared the early career experiences that were pivotal to his growth as a leader. If you haven't listened to that episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to all the episodes in order to hear Patrick's full story and insights into how to design a world-class architecture firm. In today's episode, we discuss the loss of one of the founders, the challenges that arise during periods of transition, and the critical need for a succession plan. How did HOK prepare for leadership succession? Excellent question, and one that was very much on Helmuth's mind when he founded the firm because he had seen in his father and his uncle's firm, there was really no plan. It was just, it survived day to day. He had it in mind that HOK would be a corporation, not a partnership, and that people would be given the opportunity to buy stock in the company. He also put in some early provisions, and this is important, that limited the tenure of each one of the three founders. This is a distinct plan to retire each one of the three founders and allow other younger people in the firm to eventually assume uh, leadership role. At the time they did it, this was truly revolutionary. Every architect running his or her own firm wants to live forever and design the world's greatest projects. Helma said, let's all stop at age 65. We have to sell, let's make a rule for just the three of us, no, nobody else, that at age 65, we have to sell our stock back to the company and the company has to pay us for that stock. We can continue to work if we wish, but we won't, we'll no longer be an owner. 
will just be an employee. That was imposed from the very beginning of the founding. Well, the oldest one was Helmuth, so his turn came first. And when he got close to age 65, well, he didn't really want to stop. <laughs> and he thought, you know, I uh, think this firm is just getting going. So he, he huddled with Gio and George Kassebaum and said, why don't we change it for me to age 70? And then I'll retire or sell my stock back. And after a long drawn out discussion, kind of an argument, really, they agreed to extend his ability to carry that stock until age 70, as long as it applied for them as well. So the new, the new normal became, okay, at age 70, I have to sell my stock. Helmuth took advantage of that. That last five years was quite productive for him. Between age 65 and age 70, Helmuth made a, a real marketing coup in the Middle East. He found out about a new university in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, that was going to be open to any firm in the world. He immediately did what Helmuth always did, jumped on an airplane and went to visit the chancellor of the university, talked his way in the door and over many cups of tea, learned what the chancellor and his colleagues were thinking about. So it gave him a better understanding from the client standpoint of what was needed. Finally, the call came for pre-qualifications and the client did something unusual. They selected four architects, four structural engineers, four mechanical, electrical, and so on, and said, now you're all pre-qualified, go out there among yourselves and, and create teams. Very unusual. So this was in the form of a telegram. This isn't, again, before the computer and before emailing and so on. And he looked at the telegram and looked at the list of firms that were on the list and realized that he had to move right now because only some of them spoke English. So he picked out other firms from that list, a structural firm from the UK, another architect from the UK and so on, that were all English speaking and sewed up a, an all English speaking team before I think the other firms even realized what was happening. So while Helmuth's team was having discussions and assembling their proposal, the other teams were busy hiring interpreters and translators, trying to get their act together between language groups. And suffice it to say that Helmuth's team won the job. It was a brand new from scratch university, finally named after the king at that time, King Saud University, a university for 25,000 students from the ground up. And it was all because Helmuth was clever enough to, number one, go visit the chancellor and learn more about it, but number two, seize the moment to get up basically a marketing advantage of having an all English speaking team, which could be more nimble and agile than anybody else. That was very serendipitous to have extended the retirement age from 65 to 70, because that happened after that 65 year limit. And if they held firm to it, maybe that opportunity would not have happened and the whole direction of HOK may have been shifted. Well, that, that's precisely it. And so, uh, that was his great triumph. But before Helmuth reached age 70, he began to understand, oh, we, we're not just going to retire ourselves when we reach age 70. We need to have successors put into place. And so he encouraged the other two, Guillaume and George Kassbaum, to name successors and to do it publicly within the firm. 
And they did. Each one selected a person in his department or group. Uh, Gio Obato selected my, my boss at the time, Bill Valentine. Bill was in San Francisco by then. George Helmuth suggested or, or listed King Graff, Horace Kingsland Graff, who was one of his top marketing uh, helpers. And George Kassebaum selected Jerry Sinkoff, who was a top project leader in St. Louis uh, as his successor. So the firm knew that the successors were there and available and ready to step in at the retirement of the founders. Well, when Helmuth reached 70, he sold his stock back, but he still wasn't ready to retire. So Gio and George Kassebaum gave him a new role to be president of what they called HOK International. And he spent the next almost 10 years traveling internationally and helping HOK to market its services. So he was still president of something, but he, he no longer had ownership in HOK. That had passed on to Gio and George Kassebaum. King Graff joined to help run the firm as, again, a troika or a three-person membership group. And then in 1982, I think it was, George Kassebaum, uh, without warning, died suddenly. He had a brain embolism and uh, woke up complaining of, of a headache. And by the end of the day, he was gone. That sent shockwaves through the firm. He was the anchor, the person that made things work. He was the person that had the relationship with our bank. Person that if clients were unhappy about something, they would go to George and George would do the right things to take care of problems and keep client relationships. George Kasselbaum was an extraordinary man. I just want to say he not only wore two hats, he was in charge of production, but he also ran the office and then ran the firm when the office expanded into multiple offices. He also left the office every day pretty much on time and uh, did other things. And people would tease him about it, say, George, all these other people are still at the office working. What, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm very well organized so that I can leave on time because I have activities in the community. He was a volunteer and a civic leader in St. Louis. He became president of the AIA National for a year. He was uh, affiliated with Washington University, the university where he was educated and later taught. And so George Kazabom had a full life of outside activities, professional and civic activities, in addition to his work inside the firm. How he did it was by being extraordinarily well organized and, number two, having great people helping him, which is the other key. If you want to really extend your reach, better get some good help. And uh, people wondered, well, now with George Kassebaum gone, they're just Gio. How is that going to work? Being led by a designer, because again, Helmuth had nurtured this idea that you would have leaders who were specialized. So what does a guy like Gio, who's been a designer his whole career, what does he know about leading a big, by now, a big firm with more than one office? There was a worry about that around the firm. I remember myself out in San Francisco being plenty concerned, well, what's going to happen to us? And it happened to coincide with a period in time when there was rapid inflation in the building marketplace. And uh, we needed some pretty steady hand at the tiller because it meant that clients were 
making different new demands on us. Like, how fast can you draw this up? Because it's going to cost me more next month than it is this month. At the peak, building price inflation was over a percent a month. So if you could find a way to build a building in half the time, you could save a pile of money. That gave rise to not only design build, but fast tracking. Design build and fast tracking are methods of project delivery to minimize the time to complete a project. Instead of separate design professionals and contractors in the common design bid build structure, design build brings all the team members under one entity to contract with the owner together, creating a unified workflow from concept to completion. Fast tracking is a technique where instead of performing tasks that traditionally may be done separately and sequentially, they're done at the same time to shorten the overall project schedule. Architects had to learn how to work with a fast track process, which meant also to work with a contractor throughout, which I think was a good thing. Fast track itself was perilous because it meant that you were designing something that was already being built. And if you weren't good with your design work, it meant that you were in great jeopardy of having uh, expensive change orders because of a mistake made early, what didn't show up until it was already in concrete. But what did Guillaume do to lead the firm after George K died suddenly? Well, Guillaume activated the process and brought in George Kassebaum's assistant, Jerry Sinkoff, and formed a new group, a new three-person group. They couldn't call it the founder group. He called it the office of the chairman. And Guillaume made himself the chairman and King Graff was the vice chairman for marketing and Jerry Sinkoff was the vice chairman for operations. Because Guillaume was still working, my colleague Bill Valentine in San Francisco was his designated successor, but was not yet engaged in the leadership group. Although Bill found himself increasingly invited back to St. Louis for meetings just to keep him informed of, as to what was going on, which is also a really good idea. There is so much change to navigate at this stage in HOK's story. The challenges of a changing market and economy, the unexpected loss of one founder and another aging out, the need to respond to these changes on the fly, and early signs of business and financial concerns. As you may recall from the previous episode, Bob Stouter, Patrick's predecessor, as the managing principal of the San Francisco office, returned to St. Louis to address business issues for the firm. Turns out that what HOK always needed was not three leaders, but four. Bob was the management leader, the person that would make sure the money was collected and that we had cash flow and the person that would deal with our bank. And Sinkoff was more in charge of the production of the work. So, the atmosphere when Gio took over was also changing in fundamental ways, Mark. Remember that Helmuth's principles, the second principle was to market full-time, and the third principle was to diversify the work and the location of the firm. Be able to do anything for anybody anywhere, as long as it had a design service connected to it. Well, what happened is that as HOK began to diversify the work, people in the firm learned how to do more than one thing. People learned how to do design airports. People began to learn how to do hospital work and justice work, as I did. So informal groups of project specialists began to emerge from this diversity of work. 
So the, the fact that Helmuth wanted to, the firm to be diversified meant in an odd way that inside the firm was the rise of specialists, the people that did their first airport project, liked it, liked the building type, and eventually made a decision, you know, I like this. I'd like to do another airport, maybe another one after that. And as they got good at it, they began to be in demand by clients and the firm to continue in that role. And so people had, instead of just being a generalist architect, they became an aviation specialist or a healthcare specialist. And in much the same way that Helmut's fourth principle, if you let a person focus on something every day, they get pretty good at it. The same thing happened so that the, the aviation specialists became so knowledgeable of all things about airports. They became um, known for their knowledge in the field. The same thing with healthcare and so on. So we have this rise of specialists inside the firm as the firm continues to diversify. And that led to a fundamental change in marketing. Again, in the early days, Helmuth was responsible for bringing in the work. Obata designed it and and Kassebaum produced it in a simple way. Now, with the rise of these specialists, specialists began to market themselves as groups. In St. Louis, they had all the groups, aviation and healthcare and justice and so on. San Francisco, we had a couple of groups because we were a younger office. We began to market in our region. If somebody needed a jail, well, I was the guy that got to go market jails. So the project specialists became people that learned how to get the work and to do the work and to keep the client relationships. That's a profoundly fundamental shift in what the firm became. And uh, that process of becoming specialized in something has continued to this very day inside of HOK. Well, pretty soon, healthcare is a big, broad field. It's clinics and hospitals and patient rooms and operatories. And we've got one person in the firm that became very specialized in operating theaters for brain surgery very highly specialized in the sport world that came a little bit later, not too much later for a while. There was one person that was a turf specialist. He knew what mix of grasses worked best for what stadium and what climate with what kind of ground conditions, whether it was salt in the ground and so on and so on. This unbelievable specialization meant that we could be ever more useful to clients and they could trust and rely on us on our judgment because it came with so much experience. Deal began touting this as the HOK matrix. He would be fond of taking a flip chart or a whiteboard, and he would list all the offices. By then, there were three or four on one side and all the specialists across the top and make up sort of a grid and put check marks. We'll see in St. Louis, we've got healthcare and we've got aviation, we've got justice, and we've got retail. And in San Francisco, we've got this and this. and well, Dallas, what's wrong with you? You only have aviation. Gio's first idea about the matrix was what was good for St. Louis was good for every office and every office should have the same. We should all fill up our matrix by learning how to do all these things. It was a good start, but it quickly became unwieldy. It doesn't make any sense to have people in two different offices that are experts in something because eventually 
they're going to start competing with each other. At this point, you may be getting the sense that rapid growth at HOK is beginning to plant the seeds of trouble. An influx of staff, new offices and teams, evolving structures in each office. Gio, once part of a troika, is now expected to make many decisions for the firm while being the lead designer. Structural cracks in the firm's foundation began to show. Well, one is that because people were encouraged in an office to develop a group, an office would hire someone that had, let's say, a little aviation experience and then put a check mark in that aviation box and say, okay, we're ready to go compete for an airport project, not having any real ability to execute if they, in fact, won something. So not a true specialist just checking the box because it was encouraged to check the box. That's right. So offices began, in a couple of cases, using the combined strength of the firm to market themselves as airport experts, basically fool the client into thinking that they were backed up by this big firm that had experts for everything, and then get started on a project, and the client would quickly understand there's, there's no experience at all here. This is going to be a problem. So Gio and Jerry Sinkoff, his big helper, had to start intervening in these cases and personally assigning, well, no, you're not going to get to do this job. We're going to take this aviation person from St. Louis or somewhere else, and you're going to work with him. Or, and and uh, don't do that again. And also, because of the geography of offices, there were all were nominally organized around the HOK St. Louis model with a managing principle and a, and a design principle and a, and a marketing principle, but they were not all equal. Some were pretty good at things and some were not. Some had leaders who were put together that didn't get along well. So we had a case where, yes, you could put them in a matrix and they all looked like they were all the same, but some offices were underperforming. Some did a good job. Some did a great job. I think in San Francisco, because it was seated very carefully with people from St. Louis, the mothership, we brought that knowledge and that culture with us. Other offices that had been, you know, when we started HOK Los Angeles, and I was part of this, this was a mistake, a whopper. We said, well, let's start an office in Los Angeles because we in San Francisco, even though California we're in the same state. There was no way that San Francisco architects were going to get to work in Los Angeles without having an office. So we said, let's start one. And we had a big idea that let's hire for leadership people that have experience in Los Angeles. And they were okay people, but they didn't know anything about HOK. We, we ended up with offices that didn't actually have HOK culture, this yeah. culture of collaboration. Now what? Los Angeles didn't really get going until finally we transferred some people from San Francisco. We learned a big lesson. You can't just plant an HOK flag and hire somebody. That's not going to work. You have to very carefully seed an office with people that already have knowledge and experience of the culture and the the operational ways of the firm. Uh, So a lot of the growth was not the best but it was masked by the overall growth of the firm. The fees continue to grow every year. And okay, so what if an office or two are not profitable? As long as the fee base is growing 
and the, generally the profits are trending in the direction of up, it's okay. We'll fix these problems as we go, but let's just keep growing. Yeah. So the seeds were planted in response to growth. You wanted to continue that growth. Yes. So the, the mission was, okay, we need to grow. And how do we do that? Yep. And uh, HOK uh, didn't have a sports practice. Uh, we bought one, sort of. Kansas City, for whatever reasons, has become the sports design center for the United States and maybe the world. And uh, four or five people from HNTB, led by Ron Lubinsky, a very fine architect, decided that HNTB was too much of an engineering firm and not enough of a design firm. So they approached HOK with this proposal that if you give us a little seed money, we'll become HOK Kansas City and uh, start a sports practice. And this was at an era when the sports marketplace was at the beginning of a great expansion. So Dio and King Graf and Jerry Sinkoff agreed with Lubinsky's proposal, but it contained some, again, seeds of future trouble. Lubinsky's was very clever about this. He said, first, we're going to be unlike any other HOK office. We're only going to do sports architecture. We won't do hospitals or jails. If we find a hospital here in Kansas City to design, we'll call you. We only want to do sports work, sports architecture. But we don't want to do it just in Kansas City, though the world for sports architecture has to be nationwide. If we can't practice it coast to coast, from this office in Kansas City, no deal. We won't do it. That was a first, a nationwide mandate. Well, what about if you have a project in San Francisco, won't you work with the San Francisco office? Well, maybe, but San Francisco doesn't know anything about sports architecture. If we screw up on one stadium project, that will taint our reputation forever and we won't get the same level of work. So, the partners, the HOK leaders agreed to that. There was one final provision, which is that for every dollar of profit we, we make for the company, we'll give you a dollar. We want 50 cents back, half of it, as bonuses for ourselves and our staff. Well, that sounds fairly realistic and not unreasonable because HOK and many firms um, have an annual bonus program and they share the profits with the employees and the, with the leaders at the end of the fiscal year. So that sounded benign. Besides, HOK Sport was just starting. How big a problem could that be? So expanding throughout the U.S., um, right around this time, you started also expanding outside of the U.S. How did that happen? This was expansion that came about because of design work, not because of marketing. Gio was approached by uh, Stanley Marcus of Neiman Marcus to design the Neiman Marcus store for a new shopping gallery in Houston called the Galleria, which was uh, developed by Gerald Hines. But as a final test, he decided to call the office on a Saturday to see if anybody was working. And he called St. Louis and somebody answered and said, he asked for Gio. And Gio usually worked Saturday mornings in the office. So when Gio answered the phone, Stanley Marcus said, you're hired. HOK was hired to design the, the Neiman Marcus department store in the Galleria. And as Gio began working with Marcus, Marcus became more and more impressed that here's, here's a designer that really listens. 
and really listens to what I need and then develops a design and response that turns out to be things that we had never thought about before. And he said, you know, Gio, I think that the, the whole Galleria design needs, needs you. So he arranged for Gio to meet Gerald Hines. And they met, and Gio was impressive, as he always is, with his listening style. He always used to say, you've got to really, and then he would pause. Listen to your clients in order to understand the best way forward. And he did his active listening style, and Gerald Hines hired him to design the whole Galleria. And Gio's design for the Galleria became legend. The Galleria was a commercial development in Houston, intended to provide an upscale mix of shopping and dining. Opened in 1970, it was one of the early indoor malls in the United States. The three-story, 600,000-square-foot development was inspired by Galleria Vittorio Emanuel, a shopping arcade in the center of Milan, Italy, from 1865 to 1877. The Houston Galleria incorporated a glass barrel vault atrium that mimicked the awe-inspiring intersecting glass-vaulted arcades in Milan. Behind Gio's bold design ideas, the Houston Galleria became the place to be in Southeast Texas. And right in the center of it, Gio proposed something equally audacious, which was a skating rink. This was ice skating, not roller skating. Well, nobody in Houston ever thought about ice skating. And so the Galleria was built, the Neiman Marcus store was built, and all of Houston began to turn toward this as the place to shop and the place to be. The Galleria then attracted uh, more tenants and uh, several expansions were added, including then hotels and office towers, which were plugged in so that people could live and work and shop and visit the Galleria. It was so successful that Gerald Hines hired HOK to design another Galleria in Dallas, Texas. But in the meantime, Houston was such a hit with the retail crowd that people from other countries were visiting to see how it worked and who designed it. The first group was a group from Saudi Arabia, Saudi investors. Saudi investors were not investing in Saudi Arabia, but a half a world away in Jakarta, Indonesia, another Muslim country. They approached King Graf when King Graf was in Saudi Arabia and said, Mr. Graf, we'd like to hire you to design a a Galleria-style retail development in Jakarta, but we know that you don't have any offices in Asia. But if you would be willing to open up an office in Asia, the job is yours. So King got out the map and looked at where Jakarta was and didn't go to Jakarta with an office, but to Hong Kong. Why? Well, because Hong Kong at the time was a British colony. English was spoken. English law prevailed and it was fairly easy to get to by plane. And it was almost on the sea, it was one hour different on the time zone from Jakarta. So the HOK Hong Kong was opened because of the design that was done in Houston, Texas, that was admired by Saudi investors. <laughs> That's the first expansion. Yeah, who would have ever thought that designing a Neiman Marcus department store would lead to opening an international office in Hong Kong? It's, it's a wondrous story. Many groups came there uh, to look at, at this. And 
And another group was from the Church of England. The Church of England had church funds that they invested to help support the church. And this investment group made a trip to Houston, saw the Galleria, liked it, asked who the designer was, and approached HOK with, we'd like to design a new Galleria-style shopping center in Glasgow, Scotland, that would be part of the portfolio of the church's real estate holdings, if you'll open an office somewhere in the UK. Well, that, of course, led to HOK London. So it's ironic that the, the first two international offices both came about, not because of some marketing coup, not because of some project specialization, although you could say so, I guess, because of the design, but because of Gio's design for the Galleria in Houston, Texas, and the notoriety that that project had. And again, all coming, you know, what if Stanley Marcus had called that Saturday at HOK and Gio wasn't there? What would that, that whole story may never have unfolded. Yeah. So what are the lessons for this episode, Patrick? I think the first one is, if you want to have a great firm, you need to plan ahead for leadership succession. Don't think you're going to live forever because you won't. So make a plan. And when you do, let other people know so that they can have confidence that the firm will carry on. And in an ironic way, a diverse workload leads to project specialists. Diversity in practice leads to specialization inside the firm, which can be a a growing strength for a firm. The third one is it is possible to buy your way into it as with HOK Sport. You just have to be very careful how, how you go about that. And the fourth one I think is also true. Great design leads to new opportunities as with the Houston Galleria leading to the first of two international offices. To continue the story, come back next week for the next episode of Built Smart where Patrick will discuss the introduction of investors into HOK, and he digs into the right way and the wrong way to grow your firm. The three founders had a provision, one last provision, in the stock plan that they organized for themselves and for the firm. And that provision was that the sole remaining founder had the right to buy enough stock to control the firm. So Obata bought enough of Casabom's stock to own actually 52% of HOK. And um, it was a good thing because he could—he then had a free hand to lead the firm in any way he chose because he could outvote all the rest of the shareholders combined. But it, it gave us a great big problem that we needed to have a lot of capital to buy out his stock. And as that time drew near, they didn't have enough money by then they had a CFO, Bob Pratzel. Bob Pratzel explained to them, and later to me, I think it's a great lesson for any architect. How do you raise money if you need money for some future event? Well, there are three ways. Thank you for listening. To read along and see illustrations and personal photos that accompany this series, get Patrick's book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. I encourage you to go grab a copy today and follow along as we continue the story. It's available now at gablemedia.com slash buildsmartbook. This podcast is a Gable Media production and is produced by Demetrius Lynch Jr. Gable Media is the home of curated thought leadership 
for an audience dedicated to building a better world. You can listen in, subscribe, and find more content like this from our network partners at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.